This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here once again with Richard Lawson. Hello, Richard. Hello. And we lost Joanna this week. She'll be back soon. But joining us instead, we have Cassie DaCosta. Hi again, Cassie. Hi. Um, so we have a lot to talk about, which is exciting because award season is moving. Last week, we had all these awards nominations from the Golden Globes and the SAG Awards to talk about. This week, uh, we have the Critics' Choice Awards nominations. We have a bunch of movies coming out. We have, uh, we're going to offer some clarity to you guys on what is still coming out and when you can actually see it. Um, and then after we record this, by the time you hear this, the uh, Academy will have announced the shortlists for various categories. So we'll talk about those too. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to have an interview between Richard and Tom Holland, who is, uh, in addition to being Spider-Man, the star of the Apple TV Plus film cherry um but first of all you know that it's award season when the vanity fair awards extra issue is out you can already right now read online our colleague johanna Desta's cover story about chadwick boseman and his performance in my Rainey's black bottom and then there'll be a lot of other great stories rolling out over the weeks to come have you guys read johanna's chadwick boseman story already not yet. I'm excited to read it. I mean, amazing stories from everyone who worked on Ma Rainey and then also like and Denzel Washington who produced it and just kind of all these people reflecting back on his legacy and like what he put into this performance. Um, so it's a great read. And I, probably next week we'll be able to reveal a little bit more about what's in there when it comes out. So go read it. And then one other housekeeping thing. Thank you to everyone who has signed up for us to text you. You saw on Twitter on last week's episode, you can uh, text the number 213-513-7169 or go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen, and you'll receive texts from us, and you can text us back and ask us questions, which many of you have already done, and we'll answer you. Um, Richard, you've been kind of checking in on this as well. It's it's really gratifying, right, just to see that people want to hear from us, I think. Yeah, in such a direct way. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, I guess we're kind of probably beamed into people's phones, but uh, texting feels more intimate, which is kind of the idea. It's to kind of yeah. just have another kind of closer form of quick connection with people listening. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff we can do with it. You know, it's not limited to just like, hey, our new episode's up. There's, yeah, there's, exactly. there's more. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll try to keep that going. If you guys want to let us know what you want to hear from us, we'd obviously be happy to hear that. Um, and then one question we got from one of you guys in the text is just what is coming out and when and how do you watch it? I think it is both easier to see awards movies this year than ever because a lot of them are on VOD already and then harder to know what is coming and like what is already available to you. Um, so I kind of I wrote down a, a little list of the titles that are still not out technically that we have talked about a lot or that are you know nominated for some of these awards. Um, so Minari is going to be in not a streaming platform, but on the A24 screening room, which is on their website starting February 12th. And they have all these like specific screenings scheduled, many of which are sold out. Um, and then it'll be on regular VOD on February 26th. Nomadland is coming to theaters and to Hulu on February 19th. Um, United States versus Billy Holiday also on Hulu on February 26th. I'm not sure about its theatrical run, but it, I imagine it'll have some level of theatrical run. And then what's really interesting is these two Sony Pictures Classics movies have like a pretty traditional rollout. Uh, the Father, which is, you know, Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman have been getting nominated for that. It's going to be in New York and L.A. February 26th, Nationwide Theaters March 12th, and then on VOD on March 26th. So you might have to wait a while to see The Father, which is a bummer because we all really like that movie. Um, and Sony Pictures Classics also has Truffle Hunters, which is this really delightful documentary. Have either of you guys seen Truffle Hunters? I've seen it twice. <laughs> yes. Cassie, have you seen up. this? It's yeah. a gift to give yourself. I, I've been meaning to watch it, but no, not yet. Yeah, it's uh, it will be in theaters on March 12th. 
and yeah, everyone should should watch that when they get the chance. And hopefully um, by the time you hear this, it's made the documentary shortlist, which will encourage more people to see it. And then there's a, you know, Netflix has a lot of titles. Amazon Prime has a lot of titles. I think we've talked about those in pretty good detail. Um, and then a couple titles are not on streaming platforms, but you can rent them. Promising Young Woman, News of the World, The Way Back, which Ben Affleck got a Critics' Choice nomination for, uh, and, and Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Um, so I don't know. I feel like there's a lot that you can watch if you know where to look for it. And it's kind of maddening that we've been talking about Minari for over a year since last Sundance. But uh, it's coming. anything that is still not out is coming very soon. So hopefully that helps a little bit with the wait. Oh, and so then, as mentioned, as you're listening to this, the shortlist for a, a solid handful of Oscar categories is already out, um, including all the shorts, documentary, international feature, makeup and hairstyling, uh, original score, original song, um, and visual effects. So maybe we'll send a text with our reactions to it since it's not going to make it in time for the episode. But it should hopefully give everyone kind of a good sense of, of what's in the running. I think it'll maybe give us a picture, especially for some of these crafts categories. I think it's harder to know than usual. Like there's not a lot of big effects heavy movies. So I'm really really curious about what the visual effects lineup is going to look like. So we'll try to give you guys some context there. But I really wish that these these groups would be a little more cognizant of when we record. You know what I mean? It just feels <laughs> We send them our press release every I mean we should just put them on the Zoom and so that they just know yeah. it's on their calendar and they can they can base it around us. It's always Thursday and it's like but that's when our episode comes out. We I need know. it Monday or Tuesday morning. I know. Please work with us. Um, well the Critics Choice Awards cooperated at least. Um, <laughs> Thank that, God. that that voting group which uh, of which I am a member announced the nominations on Monday. Um, I mean, I think this is this always happens like, like the Golden Globes and the SAGs will come out and then the Critics' Choice comes afterward. And it's like, oh, it's most of the same titles, especially because there's like, I think, eight Best Actor nominees and seven Best Actress nominees. Like it's there's such long lists. Um, I mean, I think, I think because of the, the scope of it, there are some like pleasant underdogs in there, like Delroy Lindo, who we talked about, who somehow didn't get nominated by SAGs or Globes, made Best Actor, Sidney Flanagan, who never rarely, sometimes, always. I don't, what did you guys find that uh, stood out to you in these nominations? It was nice to see Paul Racy because he got blanked mm-hmm. uh, at SAGs and Golden Globes, even though he'd won these critics prizes and was kind of like looking like he was a sure thing for a supporting actor no- a nomination. I think he might still be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool. You know, Minari is showing up more and more, which is exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's interesting also that, you know, the, the Critics' Choice Awards have this young actor best young actor category. Yeah. Um, and so you have p- people like Alan Kim from Minari, who's so cute, and Helena Zengold from News of the World, who has been nominated elsewhere just recently. But you also have Talia Ryder from Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, who's like a full teenager, if not early 20-something, <laughs> up against like a seven-year-old, but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's also the category where... Uh, in some alternate timeline, this was a more nominated movie. The Midnight Sky appears, which mm-hmm. remember that movie? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Available on Netflix um, that I actually think is fine. So, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see these titles and names from stuff that probably won't show up uh, come Oscar time. Cassie, anything strike you? Not really. I mean, there's nothing that was like so surprising. I feel like sometimes with these awards, well, it's it's nice to see that there's some variety or that people are thinking of different people because it Mm -hmm. kind of compounds the idea that like you know it's just about who you remember (laughs) ultimately (laughs) well and kind of going back to what I was saying about the Oscar crafts categories like when you get down to production design and costume design and hair and makeup because there haven't been uh you know a lot of like big spectacle movies you get some really interesting like Emma showing up for costume design or my um, favorite, the personal history of David Copperfield is there in production design. So I like the, there's like, because I think a lot of groupthink can set in, in, especially in a year like this, maybe when it feels like it's the same 20 movies with not much variety. Um, you know, I would have loved to see First Cow show up in more places beyond just on my ballot. Um, but it's nice. It's nice to see a little bit of range there. So maybe the Oscars will be able to do the same thing. It's also funny in, in the visual effects category, um, seeing the invisible man there. And it's like, surely that movie came out six years ago. Like, <laughs> how could that possibly be eligible for anything currently? Yeah, I because uh, so, so the Critics' Choice also have uh, introduced the Super Awards. So they do a lot of like um, genre film categories there. And for, for that ballot, I finally watched The Invisible Man. I like sucked it up uh, as a famous scaredy cat. And uh, Elizabeth Moth was really good in that movie. Everyone was mm-hmm. correct. Um, she's great in Shirley, too. I mean, she, she feels so emblematic of like our early pandemic thought being like the Oscars they'll do something different this year like all these weird movies will get a chance and now 
it's it's a little bit more more like what you would expect. You, you know, and I was reminded of Elizabeth Moss in in The Invisible Man was when we were I think it was New York Film Critics Circle was voting and announcing our winners, you know, kind of live on Twitter, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and when we got to best actress, <laughs> a lot of Brazilian teens were very upset with us that we didn't give it to <laughs> Elizabeth Moss for The Invisible Man. Yeah, they're very, the Brazilian teens are very invested in these critics awards to begin with. And then there was that <laughs> extra support for her in that movie. Are they big fans of the movie, of her? Like, I wonder where Elizabeth Moss really connected with these Brazilian I think, teens. I think both. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good for good for her. <laughs> um, I was a little surprised, you know, even though it feels like Critics' Choice nominated everything, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah not being in the Best Picture lineup felt a little surprising to me. Like, um, Daniel Kaluuya was in for Supporting Actor, but not Lakeith Stanfield in Best Actor, even though there's eight people listed there. Um, I don't know if that's like a, it's just not quite out yet thing or because it, it, it has felt to me for a while like it is going to arrive as a really big deal as kind of like a late breaking movie that everyone can get excited about right when they're filling out their ballots. Um, are, do you guys have a have a read on on how it's arriving in, in the field at this point? How these narratives for awards kind of come to be in that like, why is it just kind of accepted that Daniel Kaluuya is going to get these nominations and maybe even win an Oscar, whereas Lakeith Stanfield is not in the conversation at all? Yeah. You know, and he's really good in the movie. Really and He's good. the lead of the movie, essentially, um, which I guess fits because, you know, he'd be lead and, and Kalia is so far being considered supporting. Uh, and they're both good in it. It just I don't know. It's just like a funny, weird thing how that happens. Maybe that's Warner Brothers choosing how to campaign. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess you can't underestimate the element that like best actor feels very much sewn up by Chadwick Boseman, whereas supporting actor is sort of wide open. And so Daniel Kaluuya could like very well win, whereas Lakeith Stanfield getting nominated would be like, OK, well, that is your nomination. You're now going to lose to Chadwick Boseman, which is fine. Um, right. So like that's where they see like an actual statue in play. Yeah. I also feel like Lakeith Stanfield has this kind of read as a supporting actor and he doesn't try in the film to overcome that, which isn't mm -hmm. a bad thing at all. But it doesn't play to awards at all. He didn't. He didn't. Yeah. He didn't play it like you know Correct. he was gunning for the the big awards. Yeah, it's like the classic thing in supporting actor, I think, like you think of like Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards, like the really showy performance that is sort of the lead often winds up being the supporting actor contender and then wins a dang Oscar. And like he, like the, the film asks Lucky Stanfield to be muted and to hold back and lets Kaluuya be the kind of um, dynamic one. But you're right, Cassie, that it kind of just like it's him doing his job, but at least him being overshadowed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn.
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, we brought you here, Cassie, both to talk about awards, obviously, but because you were writing about Judas and the Black Messiah this week, it's out on HBO Max and in theaters this week. Um, and your piece hits on something that, like, is a trend that we talked about a few weeks ago that to me is a little surprising. Maybe it shouldn't be surprising. And I'm kind of interested in what you think on this. But so Judas and the Black Messiah, the United States versus Billie Holiday and MLK FBI, both like all three are about the FBI specifically targeting these like famous or otherwise noteworthy black people in roughly the 1960s, 1970s, um, which is a real thing that happened. It's documented history. It's not like the most focused on aspect of the civil rights movement. I think for a lot of us who were like educated in American public schools, like you have to learn about that later as an adult. And Cassie, your piece is up on VF.com now and people can read it. And you kind of talked about, you know, the trend of these movies all existing, but also how they they grapple with the idea of the FBI as a group, but kind of make them into individual stories as a way to almost like make it more palatable in a way. And and tell you can tell me if I'm kind of butchering what you said, but I thought that was an interesting starting point that like these movies are uncovering a history that's under discussed, but maybe not going all the way in the end after all. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty good summary. I feel, and I also add, <laughs> I add Trial of the Chicago Seven into this. Yes, um, but. Well, the first thing is that they take a kind of individualistic lens, which is to um, really look at these uh, black figures um, from Fred Hampton to Bobby Seale to Billie Holiday to MLK um, as these kind of individual beacons of light who um, were the victims of like a bad FBI agent for the most part. with MLK um, FBI being an exception in that it is looking at the system itself, though it all of these films kind of tend to ignore or put aside um, sort of the anti-communist fervor that was behind a lot of this, um, specifically the counterintelligence program uh, or COINTELPRO, um, which was kind of spearheaded by J. Edgar Hoover. Um, so, you know, these are all kind of mechanisms that make sense for Hollywood, which tends to not want to reckon with um, kind of the depth of McCarthyism or the depth of kind of how um, the U.S. uh, as a government is allied with anti-communism and ultimately um, anti-socialism, which is part of the same thing. And so, you know, all of these films kind of, (laughs) they, they come up against this limit that is either self-imposed or seems to be a limitation to even getting a film like um, maybe Judas and the Black Messiah made in the first place. I think Shaka King has spoken very candidly about how hard it was to get the film made and what they needed to do to kind of disguise the narrative. So yeah, the piece is just about how how Hollywood can, can reckon with the historical drama um, if they're not, uh, if the system itself uh, isn't willing to look at institutions rather than individuals as actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think something you pointed out in the piece, which is really great, people should read it, um, is that MLK FBI, it approaches that, you know, partly because it's a documentary and doesn't have to, it doesn't have the same commercial demands. Um, it caught, you know, upon it, you know, higher budgeted scripted film does. But I was, I found myself also wondering like, how much of studio Hollywood and even independent films, the the resistance to that kind of more institutional thinking, is that wedded to the, just like this, this really bedrock uh, reliance on law enforcement narratives in TV and film, or is it more reflective of a kind of governmental ethos or is it both? Like, I I think it, I think it's an interesting thing because we're, we're dealing with like, TV shows about cops, procedurals, like having to, you know, do some thinking about how th- that work is depicted, you know, especially post um, the protests of last summer, but probably something that should have been happening for a lot longer. And there's a real resistance to it. But it o- oftentimes, like at the most surface level, it seems like people are like, well, we just don't know what other, other kind of shows to make, you know, mm-hmm. but obviously there's something deeper behind it. Yeah, I think that. I don't think that the actual content of a procedural, there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, there, there's so much, you know, to <laughs> annoyingly borrow a phrase from 
Noam Chomsky, we have a lot of manufactured consent around how these narratives unfold. Um, the narratives tend to not be even critical of their very premise, which is that the police is, is, is an ultimately good force that is full of good actors and maybe the occasional bad actor. That's kind of something that we're supposed to take, you know, as as the basis of most of these films, or even in the United States versus Billie Holiday, in which, okay, the FBI is made to look um, cartoonishly evil, which which very may well be fitting, but then the military is kind of held in, in this bizarre reverence without thinking, hey, are, are these two institutions related somehow in any way, maybe? <laughs> and even, even the trial of the Chicago 7 does the same towards the Vietnam War. It becomes rather than kind of exposing the parts of Abby Hoffman or Thomas Hayden's anti-war stance and, and the depth of it, it, it kind of says, oh, you know, let's let's honor our veterans. And it just leaves it at that. It distills it in that place. And you think, oh, there's actually a, a very interesting conversation to be had here in conversation with the characters depicted in this film that the filmmaker seems to refuse to have. And yeah, and so I think, Richard, it's kind of, it's a, it's a bit of both. It's both the form is familiar. Everyone has done it, and it's gotten people awards and <laughs> praise, um, as well as a lot of money. And then also, you know, there is this kind of um, alliance too. I think U.S. government, especially, I think now that we are in a post-Trump era, at least nomin nominally, you know, there's you you had kind of Obama appear on the. Uh, Oscars broadcast not long ago um, and give sort of the the stamp of approval to Zero Dark Thirty, a film that kind of has an interesting relationship to torture and, and, the, and the facts around that. So yeah, I think that, you know, we're, these films that are, I, in the piece I say that, you know, these four films are are trying to build a counter narrative to that history, but they still come up against these limits. Um, and it's, you know, I'm not sure if it's productive to try to figure out where those limits are coming from directly, but I think you can assume Hollywood as an industry um, is generally, they don't feel like they, you know, stand to gain much from being adversarial in this place. And then it's kind of ironic that some of the directors or the films that have actually been more adversarial aren't necessarily coming from people on the left. Yeah, the the thing that you you know you bring up about how it's reckoning with the racism within the FBI that was driving a lot of this, but not the anti-communism, and it makes me wonder if like if Hollywood and, and all of us maybe are doing ourselves a disservice by kind of memory holing all the anti-communism of the last half of the 20th century. Like it's just, I think all of us were, you know, born close enough to the fall of the Berlin Wall that it's a little hard to wrap your mind around how much that drove everything. Um, and it is such a big part of it. Like anytime you look back at the McCarthy area, it plays this huge role in the link of like anti-communism and racism. But like racism in law enforcement is something that is very easy for us to grasp in a modern context, whereas anti-communism is a little bit harder to get into. But you make me wonder, Cassie, if maybe that's something that uh, that these films in this period really owe us to, like, see how all those pieces came together and how they still influence what's happening now. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, one thing that I saw recently on social media was, um, you know, different uh, U.S. Congress people quoting um, Fred Hampton, but leaving out the socialist part. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> just right. truncating the quote at a very convenient. Yeah. What was the quote? I missed this. It, it was this quote where he's talking about, oh, you know, we need solidarity. Um, you know, you know, it was his kind of contrasting one thing to another thing. And later on, he says, you know, we need socialism, not black capitalism. Um, and they don't get to that part of the quote. Um, it's just kind of the more like unity vague, uh, language that sets up the more precise language in that speech. Um, and it's a speech that is depicted in Judas and the Black Messiah. And that has a, a force, but that we also have a culture around us that is trying to abridge, trying to ally that. It means that these films actually need to, I think, in my personal opinion, they need to be more forceful in at least depicting this history, depicting this ideology, um, rather than sort of turning it into, you know, a shorthand. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, for a director, that's probably not going to be the most exciting thing for them to film. or to, it's, it's hard to, to make ideology interesting to people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think it's a worthy task uh, because this history has been so... 
um, suppressed. They, they need to study some of the old agitprop theater, you know. Uh, it, it was done, it worked. <laughs> you know, to read some Brecht or something, I don't know. But um, but I think, yeah, I think something about Judas and the Black Messiah, which I, I reviewed on the site, and, and I did like the movie, and I think the performances are good, and it's an interesting story uh, in, in a sort of cinematic version, even if we're not getting the, the real, you know, all the details um, of the real-life uh, narrative. But I... I, I think that what you're talking about, Cassie, in terms of like it's it's politics, I think that it would be a stronger film if it was really saying something without this kind of vague air of equivocation. You know, I, I, it's certainly not siding with Jesse Plemons' character who plays this FBI agent doing the bidding of J. Edgar Hoover, played by Martin Sheen, which is a funny inversion of like West Wing daddy, you know, <laughs> that he's now this like horrid man. Um <laughs> You know, and but I think what you're talking about, Cassie, in terms of like it, it sort of like turns this individual into the sinister person rather than the institution. But I, I don't know. I just yeah, I wish that there was more of like a forceful kind of like statement made, I guess. And it's hard to do that in commercial filmmaking. It's hard to do that as an artist who wants to sort of, you know, show the var- the variance and subtleties and nuances of the world. But it made me hunger for like, I, I think there there have been those kind of overtly political movies, but I feel like not recently uh, or at least not successfully to my mind. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that Trial of the Chicago 7 in some senses is trying to do that. But then you have these scenes where Eddie Redmayne is arguing with Abby Hoffman played by Sasha Baron Cohen. And it's like, well, who, you know, maybe everyone's kind of both right. And it's like, I wish someone would just yeah. kind of come down on one mm. side. Yeah. It's and not, say I think something, that I guess. there's like a, a prevailing idea that by expressing um, a point of view in your film, that you're being simplistic or that you're being, um, you know, un- unserious. Uh, and I think that, yeah, it's, it's almost this kind of like as if filmmakers are supposed to be journalists and kind of depict the full range of evidence. I don't think that's necessary. I mean, that's an approach to a film, especially a documentary that makes sense as an approach. But in a feature film uh, that you've decided to make on a topic that you decided you wanted to write all about, it's very interesting to kind of hedge back and forth for the entirety of the film. Well, Cassie, I love that you pointed out in your piece that um, Richard Jewell was like one of the most like clearly anti-FBI pieces that's or films that's come out in recent years. And when we think of Clint Eastwood as being political in like a direction that maybe necessarily we don't agree with, um, I had never it, that had never occurred to me. I thought that was a great point. Oh, no, of course. Exactly. I was, I was just about to say you look at a director like Clint Eastwood and for both better and worse, depending on the film you're looking at, um, <laughs> he, he really comes down. He, he, he says what he means and it doesn't sacrifice um, the craft of the film or even the, the nuance depicted in the film. What happens is there's a kind of passion and dynamism in the ideas of the film. And then the director is forced to have to defend them and make the film work within the the, the span of these ideas and that takes a level of commitment that I think it's probably easier for someone like Clint Eastwood to get that film made because of his stature in the industry um, it's harder for you know emerging filmmakers or probably even black filmmakers uh, to make films like this and have them supported um, to have a budget for them um, though you know with Aaron Sorkin I, I have to say it it doesn't surprise me. This is the person who made The West Wing. And I think people were kind of really excited because they're like, oh, he's doing a radical history and maybe, maybe it'll be pretty good. And, you know, I think there are a lot of strong elements in the film. And he does the kind of Sorkinisms. The, the dialogue really works for this setting. But yeah, like you said, that scene between Hayden and Hoffman, it's almost like a reverse history lesson where you don't really learn anything about either of them. You kind of it's it almost seems like you're getting an argument between two friends, not two people who were huge activists um, who had serious commitments, ideological commitments in that era. Well, yeah. And I think sometimes things like that scene, they can kind of placate a viewer into being like, well, what's the point of that? I mean, it's it's too intense. Like, and, and this scene proves that nothing can get done if you're, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about the Bruce Springsteen Jeep ad from the Super Bowl that everyone's <laughs> mad at, you know, the middle. Where it's like, what does that accomplish, though? You know, um, but yeah, and I think in the case of, of Clint Eastwood, it's like, I mean, it just goes to show that, like, you can want to get a lot of different kind of people off your lawn. 
and sometimes it's the <laughs> FBI and sometimes it's menacing teens. I don't know. I, you know. I guess Clint Eastwood has a solid track record of being just leave this guy alone. Like Sully <laughs> right. needs the National <laughs> Transportation Security Board off his lawn yep. and Richard joins the FBI. Yeah. Um, it kind of... Yeah, an anarcho-capitalism, I guess. <laughs> the unified lawn theory of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> um, Cassie, you were talking about Shaka King being open about how he kind of had structured the movie to make it sellable. And I know you interviewed him. Is that something that you guys talked about, about like what, like the way that he packaged the story to make it work in a Hollywood context? Because I, I mean, I do think for all the shortcomings we're talking about, I do think the movie works really well and gets at a lot of ideas that for me felt kind of new in this form of biopic. Like I, I think he succeeded with the with with how he set that up. Yeah, I think that it's a very strong film, you know, given the le- the level of, res- you know, limitations that were put. It's a very imaginative film that had to sit in a set of limits, um, at least from what King has told me and other interviewers, um, for it to get made in the first place. And, and he really talked about this idea of Trojan horse, a Trojan horse kind of enveloping of the black revolutionary narrative within a crime film or a gangster film. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not new. There are, there are, you know, Scorsese people think, you know, there are people <laughs> online <laughs> who think that he just makes gangster films, but there are certainly um, moral questions and ideological questions contained in those films. And the gangster film isn't merely a vehicle, but that's part of what it does. That's part of its function. And so Shaka King was looking back um, at films that did that. Um, but he also certainly had, um, higher sort of ambitions for the politics of the film to come through. The Battle of Algiers was a huge inspiration for him as well. Um, and I don't think that gets lost in the film. You certainly do feel the force of, look at this person who, talking about William O'Neill, look at this person who comes from a very depoliticized background, Um, who doesn't look at his circumstances in terms of a collective, in terms of a larger system, but very much in terms of his own circumstances and what he needs as an individual. And look what happens as a result of that, right? Mm. But you can't guarantee, and there's nothing any director can guarantee about how their audience will see the film, but it's very easy to take that narrative um, as an audience, um, as our, you know, greater American society and look at it on the purely individualistic basis. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think a lot of people who already know about Fred Hampton have been kind of clamoring for a film about this person who's so charismatic um, mm-hmm. and so had so much conviction at such a young age to be made. And so obviously there are a lot of expectations on what the film does. I don't think that it fails, but I do think that there are ways in which you see the you see kind of where that ambition could have gone and you wish that it went there. Or you wish that maybe, you know, the budget was for gone for a movie that was, you know, a little less beautiful, um, but really went there. Um, I think it's an interesting question to pose to directors, no matter how much you like them, which is like, is it worth all this? (laughs) (laughs) I want you to start going to movie premieres, being on the red carpet, being like, is it, is this what (laughs) you really wanted? Yeah. (laughs) I've rearranged the budget and here's what I think you could have done. (laughs) (laughs) Really constructive advice. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if I'm giving these movies too much credit and or like maybe assuming knowledge that more moviegoers have. Like, I I think that there's a, a way in which movies like Judas and the Black Messiah and MLK FBI and to some extent Billie Holiday that can, can kind of start taking the scales away from the eyes. Like, I think the way that the that law enforcement has been depicted in movies for, you know, most of Hollywood and MLK FBI especially points this out using all these old footage of like gangster films that were effectively propaganda for the FBI as it was being born. You know, the fact that there is a movie about Fred Hampton, the fact that there are these movies that kind of take it as a given that like the American law enforcement was used to terrorize black people and black radicals in a way like it it is new for Hollywood like they are they are slow in so many ways that we discuss all the time but I can imagine people understanding things from all of these movies that they would not have understood otherwise you know if they haven't taken a class on this stuff if they haven't read the autobiography of Malcolm X or all kinds of you know different things that might make you more aware of this like am I giving them too much credit for doing something when we, we need to be encouraging them to go further yeah I mean my my personal view is that as a critic you always have to you have to say what you really think, even if there's some hedging to do. And so for me personally, I don't think that you, I don't, 
I don't feel like I ever need to go easy on Hollywood. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do I do want to be clear that for the directors, I understand that the work is, is difficult and that there certainly are always compromises made. But ultimately what you're judging is you're, you're looking at how the scales kind of tipped in the end and what your impression was, mm-hmm. where it ended up. And yeah, and I think in all of these films, because there was this through line um, that was really noticeable to me, which was, you know, that we are comfortable with this individualistic lens, even in the wider discourse around police brutality, that Mm. moves us away from the material conditions. It moves us away from actually thinking like, what is economics? And did economists just make this up? And does this contribute to all of our other problems? People don't want to talk about it, especially in America, because... You know, there's been a history of suppressing thought, open conversation that questions the capitalist system. And so films play into this in in some way, even if they're actively trying to make a different message. And I think The United States versus Billie Holiday was one film in which I think it, it seemed to me very confused about where its focus needed to be, right? Is this a movie about Billie Holiday as an addict? Is it a movie about you know, the FBI's targeting of Billie Holiday? Is it a movie about uh, uh, segregation? It wasn't sure. And and by kind of dithering around the very individualistic lenses of each of these issues, it really wasn't able to bring anything together because the thing that connects all of those issues is the larger system. It's not merely the individual, the effects on the individual. So, yeah, I think that that's something that if it's not addressed, if if there's too much... um, sort of happiness for the representational aspects of these films, I think we'll get lost and we'll continue to get more films that are kind of just like, okay, here's a, you know, a biopic of this person um, and we're going to add some activist social justice stuff, but that's just in the background. Mm, yeah, that is the the dystopian version of where this could all take us. I think we first have to convince more people that the poor family were not the parasites in Parasite. <laughs> which, <laughs> which some people still do think, I think. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, happy one-year anniversary to Parasite winning Best Picture. Um, oh, God. I know. What I'm a... just going to listen to the Jane Fonda saying it oh, over and no, over the, again. <laughs> the, the, the silence between Jane Fonda yeah. opening the envelope and saying it is uh, rings in my heart every day. Uh, Bobby Finger had a joke uh, last year where he was like, I'm going to make one of those, you know, 10 hour long YouTube videos that people do, but it's her saying and the, and the Oscar goes to, and then, you know, 10 hours later, she says, Parasite. <laughs> it, I still think of that, that pause as being the turning point of the entire year. Like it, yeah. I think that the parasite them celebrating was still at the peak and then it just all slowly collapsed. The best there. and worst it got really, or yeah. no, I mean the best it got. And then it was everything after was worse. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. We get uh, to conclude Jews and the black Messiah, is, as we said, is out this week for people to watch. Um, I think it is something that we're going to continue talking about, but I, I just I really like the way that you're framing thinking about this, Cassie, as being like, here's a story that you may or may not have known. Here's the power in it. Here is all the other power that is still to be discussed in it, Um, which I think, like you said, is like worth asking of anything that is being presented to us on this larger scale. Um, Richard, did you have any final Jews and Black Messiah thoughts? Uh, No, just that I hope people watch it. It's easy to watch, right? It's on HBO Max. Uh, yeah. for for like a month and um, super entertaining like and like a, mm-hmm. an easy watch i mean like a you know dark and sad watch but like i think it is it is very gripping it moves along very well and as we were saying before it's got these very charismatic performances jesse plemons i think is so great in this yeah. um speaking of being in martin scorsese gangster movies with a message like he was also in the irishman like he's really he's on a roll there and dominic fishback who is really just keeps kind of growing as a performer and she, you know, she's, she was on the deuce, uh, the, the, um, HBO show. And she was recently in the Jamie Foxx action movie project power, I think it was called. And so any, any, anytime she's in something increasingly it's, it's exciting. You know, if you liked, I mean, not to oversimplify, but if you liked Donnie Brasco, <laughs> this is similar in plotting, I guess you could say. So okay. yeah, people should watch it definitely. And read Cassie's piece. Cause it's really a nice companion. Yeah. To- if uh, if Donnie Brasco is also on HBO Max, then we'll know that the uh, the synergy is complete. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who released that movie. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
Okay, Richard, now let's listen to the interview you did with Tom Holland. He is in this movie, Cherry, that is coming out uh, later this month on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, obviously, he is very famous as being Spider-Man. He has been kind of this, like, bright, shining star. Like, as, as in terms of, like, young stars coming up, I just like seeing him in all contexts. And this is, movie is a really big departure for him. Yeah, you know, it's a something of a rite of passage movie. You know, it's the young, you know, actor known for being a kid, either in Billy Elliot or The Impossible or Spider-Man taking on their first sort of grown up or at least young adult role, uh, which is, you know, always interesting to see how that works. And um, so, yeah, I talked to him about that. And, uh, you know, Cherry is an interesting case because it is probably the latest breaking Oscar hopeful of this year. You know, yeah. um, it, it is being submitted for things, but it won't be on Apple TV plus until the middle of March. But we're talking to him now because, well, he's on the awards uh, campaign. So, um, yeah, I mean, we didn't talk too much about like awardsy stuff, but. Yeah, he's, you know, an interesting actor, wants someone to watch. So and to listen to now. Yes, (laughs) let's listen to it. Well, I'm so happy now to be on the line on the Zoom uh, with the star of the upcoming film, Cherry, Tom Holland. Tom, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, uh, well, first off, I want to ask, you know, how have you been doing this past year? I mean, what, what has life been like uh, in these COVID times for you? Um, i got to say, Richard, I've been very fortunate during these difficult times. Um, for me, my career hasn't really halted. I've been lucky enough that I've been able to continue working. I made a film uh, called Uncharted with Mark Wahlberg last year. I'm currently shooting Spider-Man 3 at the moment. Um so I've been very lucky, it, you know, it, it put a pause for a while and I went home and we locked down in London and I had a few months where I was sort of kicking about the house. Uh, but all in all, I've had a great time and I, I've really enjoyed the jobs I've been working on. And and I definitely recognise how lucky I am to be working when so few people are at the moment and really, really having a hard time. Um, so I've been very lucky and, and I've been enjoying myself. And now, you know, you have this whole uh, different kind of work other than shooting and promoting Cherry and, and kind of getting the word out about that movie. Um, I, I have a bunch of questions about this big epic, um, but I'm curious in terms of like, what, what's the origin story? I mean, obviously, you've worked with the Russo brothers pretty intensely for the past few years. Was it just kind of a, an, an automatic collaboration? They said, we have this book we're adapting. Uh, what, what, how did you get signed on to the project? Yeah, basically as simple as that, really. I mean, I was working with Joe and Anth on uh, Avengers Endgame and uh, Joe took me aside and said, you know, we're making this film. We want you to be the lead. Uh, It's a small independent film. He didn't tell me what it was about. He just sort of told me that he wants me to be in it. And I was honestly just touched that they wanted to work with me. You know, of all the people in the business that they could work with, I just felt really honoured that they'd chosen me. And then when I finally got the chance to read the script, I was even more blown away because I finally recognized the opportunity that had been handed to me. You know, as a young actor, you're always looking for ways to challenge yourself. You're looking for ways to push yourself. You haven't been in the past. And I think we could probably agree that this film achieves both of those goals. Uh, so as soon as I read the script and I knew that it was the Russos making it, it was a no brainer. And, uh, and it was a very definite yes. Yeah. I mean, it definitely does feel, I mean, in terms of its content and its style, even, uh, like a big change for you. Do you at all view this as like, you know, your first grown up role or your first adult role? I mean, d- is that how you kind of look at a project or is it is it more just this specific thing interests you? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, it depends what you mean by an, an adult role. But my agents and I have been very strategic in choosing our moments, you know, and and trying to be really clever with when we decide to take that next step into becoming an adult and making films about real people and about real problems and, and, and getting messages across. And um, we did that a little bit with Devil All the Time, the Antonio Campo movie. That was kind of the first step. But Cherry is the big step. And that is that was why it was so daunting, because I haven't done a film like this before. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I was nervous to see how the world would see me in that light. And, in, and as that character, obviously the film hasn't come out yet, I'm, uh, but I am very apprehensive as to see how people respond to to my work in this film. You know, it's there's a lot of intense stuff in, in Cherry. What was, to your mind, when you read the script, the most kind of daunting thing? I mean, what were you most scared to, to shoot? I think it was probably the emotional aspect of the film. Physically, I knew I could do it. I knew I'd be able to do that. 
Um, but emotionally, you know, I'm very lucky and lived a very charmed life. And I've been an actor since I was 11. So I haven't really had to deal with much trauma or sorrow or grief or things like that. So I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to maintain that level of emotion for a four month period. That is where the Russos became so valuable because they were my safety net. Um, that's where Sierra Bravo was so valuable. She was my partner in crime and she's absolutely astonishing in the film and a great friend. And, and I can't tell you how lucky I am to have had her to help me throughout this process. Um, so I think for me, yeah, the thing I was most daunted about was maintaining that level of emotion. What kind of prep did you do? I mean, you know, I think that one thing that actors who are very good actors can, they can fall into the trap of when you're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be acting high or on drugs or something, there can be a bit of a sort of showiness to that, a sort of theater. And something that's really, I think, immersive and bracing about Cherry is that there's none of that. You know, it feels entirely credible when when these characters are are in these uh, these lows of their lives. Um, did you talk to soldiers, addicts, anything like that in, in, in prepping for, to shoot? Yes, absolutely. We did loads and loads of research i mean i must have sat down with 30 different people who are all veterans who are all medics all suffering from ptsd and substance abuse um and for me the more information i could get about a problem that i knew so little about to begin with the better um i worked with nurses we worked with um someone who was running a rehab clinic in cleveland and he became our consultant and would be there on set with us every day and would show us how to shoot someone up and show us how to cook heroin or explain to us the feeling of what would it be like if you mixed a bit of crack with heroin. There's a scene in the film where I go to rob a bank and uh, I shoot up in the car just before. And he said to us that day, you would never do that before you go into rob a bank. But if you put a bit of crack in there, it would totally change your, your attitude and your, and your physical prowess, I guess. So having people on set like that to kind of guide us through the process was, uh, was so valuable. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows. And, and I think, you know, um, I'm a bit older than you and, and these characters are about my age. You know, I was, I was right. in college in the early two thousands and, you know, nine 11 was my first week of college. And, and people in my hometown, uh, in well, my neighborhood in Boston, uh, a lot of them were lost to opioids, either killed or went to prison. And mm-hmm. and you're younger, but uh, did, you, did you see any parallels between this kind of half generation removed and your your age, the Generation Z? Um, uh, do you think that a lot of these things are still kind of ongoing? Yeah, I mean, arguably the opioid epidemic is worse now. Yeah, uh, and it's affecting far more people. I think one of my favorite things that Joe said, Joe Russo, is the opening of the film is these like swooping shots over Cleveland. We fly over Cleveland and we see thousands and thousands of houses. And that is to convey to the audience that yes, we're telling the story of two people, but really we're telling the story of millions of people. This is one story amongst millions. Um, And I really hope that this film can shed the light on a problem that's invisible. Um, and a problem that is mostly fought in the shadows. You know, people are very ashamed to talk about their addictions and 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 uh, and that sort of thing. So I hope that this will shed light on that problem and people will change their attitude towards people who are suffering from addiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what I really appreciated about the film is that it, in its length and its kind of thoroughness. I mean, you know, we go to war, we we go to these, you know, into a life of crime. It, it it's so big, but in that bigness, it encompasses so many actual lives, you know, so many lived experiences from people my age, your age. So it feels thorough and it almost feels surprising that there hasn't been something this kind of about this very epic subject matter. Mm. What were the conversations like on set about the film's style? I mean, did you, it's, it is pretty stylized. Did you feel that in the shooting or is that kind of all added after the fact? Absolutely. I mean, the Russos changed their way of shooting time and time again while we're making this film from from different lenses they were using, from different styles of lighting, from different performance techniques, from, you know, they would frame us sometimes very differently throughout the film. Um, So we were very much aware of the different type of chapters we were trying to make. Um, You know, the beginning of the film is this kind of beautiful, romantic 
realism and then we go into this absurd kind of war um, portion of the film and then suddenly we, we get punched in the face by this very realistic and very harrowing version of uh, drug abuse. So yeah, we were very much aware of the tonal shifts throughout the process of making this film. Was that a real head shaving moment in, in the film? Or, or yes. was that? Yeah, it was. Okay, so that's yeah. one take. You can't you can't screw that up. Well, we'd already shaved my head because oh, okay. we were shooting prior. But what right. we did is we had about a week's worth of work um, where we just allowed it to grow, and uh, and then oh. you shaved it down to a, to a one. Um, but I I actually loved having a shaved head. It was yeah. so nice. It was so refreshing to wake up, get out of bed, and realize that your hair was already done. It was one of the very one of the only luxuries of playing this character. <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I I let my hair get too long during quarantine, and then said, "Screw it, I'll get the shortest haircut I've gotten in years." Mm. And it's so it is liberating. You just wake up and you're done. You. Yeah. <laughs> so this film is coming out. You're on set filming something else now um, in very changed times from when I think Cherry was filmed. What is it like being back on a set? Um, I mean, I'm not asking for spoilers or anything. Don't worry. But um, just in terms of the actual day to day of filming a movie with all these new restrictions, how has that experience been? I mean, I love being on set. It's it's where I feel most at home. Um, it's obviously limiting with COVID and we're having to be very careful and very responsible in the way that we behave. Um, there's certain protocols that we have to follow to make sure that we maintain this level of safety for the cast and crew. You know, it can be a little tedious at times, but it's so necessary. And we all recognize how lucky we are to be working right now. Um, so it's a necessity that we don't mind taking on because, um, because, like, as I said, we're also lucky to be here. Yeah, it's and, you know, from my end of things, uh, it's just heartening that there is going to be more coming. And, and you know, yeah. because there had been some fear that we were going to have a, a pretty severe drought, but it seems like people are figuring it out. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, have you had any, I mean, I know you've been really busy, but have you had any chance during this past year to watch anything that your peers have made or anything? Has anything kind of helped sustain you uh, during during these kind of stuck indoors times? I mean, loads of stuff. I was watching all sorts of silly TV shows while I was at home in lockdown. I think the film that I've watched most recently that's really stayed with me was um, Malcolm and Marie. It's uh, Zendaya her new film and we watched it the other night she put on a screening for us after work and I don't know if it's because I know her so well but I was so blown away by both of the performances the writing the direction the cinematography for me it was kind of like a perfect film um and I just was so proud of her and I really really was taken aback by by where she went in that film and I knew she could do it I never had any doubt in my mind that she wasn't capable of a performance like that, but, uh, but to see her do it and also for her to be sat in the theater and then to see her afterwards was a really special moment for me. Um, so yeah, incredibly proud and equally as blown away. Malcolm and Marie is a huge stylistic shift away from, you know, a big Marvel movie, um, mm. spare two people, one set, essentially what kind of, kind of genre shift or, you know, scale shift, I guess, are, are you curious to do? Um, I mean, obviously, Cherry is something different and Devil All the Time was something different. Uncharted will be something different. But what what, what do you what would you hope to be, you know, uh, on the horizon for you? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure. Something that challenges me, something I haven't done before. It could be a comedy. Um, again, another dramatic movie with a character that's a huge departure from myself. Uh, a play I'd love to get back on stage and, and perform on stage again I'm kind of flirting with the idea of trying a bit of stand-up comedy following my old man in his footsteps um, you know there's all sorts of things I'd like to try and do I'm very I, I, I need to keep reminding myself that I'm only 24 and I have my entire life ahead of me um, so I don't want to rush anything I want to take my time and be very clever and strategic in what I do next um, I'm sort of coming to the end of a chapter in my life and I'm very excited to see what the future holds. I'm also a little bit nervous to sort of step away from things. But, you know, as anything, I, I like to uh, improvise and take things in my stride and, and just get on with it, really. Yeah, as intense as Cherry is, I would imagine maybe that because, you know, he's going through really dire life changes. But like, it, you know, we all kind of hit a, a certain flux point in our early 20s. Um, did making this film help you kind of process your own growth into like young adulthood? Yeah, it taught me a very valuable lesson 
in loads of different ways. But I think the most valuable lesson for me as an actor is that vanity is such a poisonous thing for an actor. You know, I spent my entire life growing up making films and worrying about what I look like. Are people going to like my hair? Does my makeup look good? Do I look good? And obviously in Cherry, we let go of that because at times it was about looking as horrendous as possible. So through feeling that freedom and from letting that go, it's totally changed my perspective on the way I act, the way I perform, the way I think about certain things. And it's got rid of a lot of insecurities for me. Um, and I'm able to just be happier in myself, which is which is an amazing thing to be able to learn. And I'm very happy that I learned it at the age of 24. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so I'd say that's been one of the most valuable things I'd learned from making Cherry. And then you have your co-star, Sierra, um, who you mentioned. Um, and yeah, she's so good in the film as well. Um, did you two have a chance to get to know each other before, like at all before filming started? Because there is such an intense bond there that... You know, I'm just curious if it was just like on the day you just were like, OK, let's go. Or if you had time to prepare for that. Yeah, I mean, naturally, we 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 hung out and we went for dinner and she met all of my friends. I had my friends with me and and uh, we would, you know, go to a club or we'd go to a bar and we just became really, really good friends. And I think that was very important for the two of us, because, you know, this film was going to require us to be very vulnerable and go to some dark places. And it was nice to have someone to go to those places with. Uh, I'm so lucky that she she was as cool and as talented and as brave as she is. But yeah, so as far as building a relationship, it started off as just becoming friends. And then as we started shooting, it started to become about being a team and being there for each other. And if I had a wobble and had a breakdown, which happened a few times, she was there to pick up the pieces, you know, and vice versa. You also had, um, you know, Jack Rayner as a co-star. Um, mm. We had him on this show um, for Midsummer, I believe. And something that really impressed me about Jack was that he has this incredible knowledge of, you know, film and old film and foreign films. And, uh, you know, all, all this. he's a real cinast, you know. Um, mm. Did he impart any of that on you uh, on set or anything like that? Yeah, I remember I went out to dinner with Jack when he was in Cleveland and we sat down and he was sort of started to talk about cinema and I started to talk about cinema and we're chatting. And then very, very quickly, I realized that we were on very different levels <laughs> yeah. on our knowledge of cinema. And, um, and I just listened to him and, and he gave me some, some tips on films that I should watch and things that I, he thinks that I would like. Um, he's yet to be wrong, but, uh, He's a great guy. I loved working with him. It was very interesting. His character is very strange. And it was an amazing experience getting to play those scenes with him. But yeah, his knowledge of cinema is out of this world. Yeah, I, I sat there across the table from him back when we could do in-person interviews. And, and and I just kind of nodded like, oh, yeah, of course, I know that film. I did not yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was doing a lot of that. Like, yeah, 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 I know that film. That's amazing. And he's like, it's not a film, it's a play. You're like, oh, shit. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for especially for younger people, I think Cherry could become one of those like canonical films for them. I mean, it, it's so descriptive of its time and its place. And, and I, you know, you're obviously, you know, such a huge part of that. So I wanted to congratulate you on that. It's really exciting to see you kind of stretch your legs as it were. Thank you so much. That's very kind. Yeah. And, and, um, I guess before I let you go, I know it's been a long day. Um, I'm not going to ask about Spider-Man, but is there anything you can tell us kind of juicy about Uncharted? Because I'm not familiar with the video games or anything, but it's a pretty star studded cast and, uh, anything about that experience that sticks out to you right now? Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing experience. It was actually much more of a challenge than I thought it would be. You know, it, it's, a, it's a very, very different type of franchise movie to what I'm used to. Playing Peter Parker kind of feels like playing a version of myself, only a little bit younger. Playing Nathan Drake is playing someone who I am very much not um, and obviously older than myself. Um, but as a process goes, it was a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed it. I did some stunts in that film, which I'm massively proud of. I think the easiest way to describe the film without belittling it in any way is that it's like if Indiana Jones and James Bond had had a baby, it would be Nathan Drake. That is the way I keep describing the film. 
that's that's a good that's a good tease i like that's uh, enticing yeah. um well again thank you tom for talking to us and congrats on the film and um, we're, we're excited for people to see it i think i think it's gonna make an impact which i guess is kind of always the hope right thank you so much i really appreciate your time thank you richard that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Uh, once again, please join Subtext to hear from us. You can text 213-513-7169 or join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen. We would love to talk even more to you. Uh, you can find us all at vanityfair.com or you can read Cassie's great piece about Justin Black Messiah. You can read our coverage of the ongoing awards season. You can see our awards issue articles start to roll out. And you can follow us on Twitter at littlegoldmen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws and Cassie. To Ernest. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of the feeling when you are asked to sign up for yet another streaming service goes to Cassie DaCosta. Is it worth all this? I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 